Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Living History UK podcast, a podcast for the discerning and knowledge-hungry historians out there. You can support our podcast and get much more from Living History UK by joining our Patreon from just £1. And by doing so, you'll be a part of an ever-growing community and really help to make a difference as we strive to keep history alive. But for now, enjoy this podcast. Towards evening of the same day, Howans was punished. We came to a part of the country of a yet wilder and more desolate appearance even than that we had already traversed. A dreary wilderness, it appeared at this inclement season, and our men, spite of the vigilance of the general, seemed many of them resolved to stray into the open country rather than traverse the road before them. The coming night favoured their designs, and many were, before morning, lost to us through their own willfulness. Amongst others, I find myself completely bewildered and lost upon the heath, and should doubtless have perished had I not fallen in with another of our corps in the same situation. As soon as we recognised each other, I found my companion in adversity was a strapping resolute fellow named James Brooks, a North of Ireland man. He was afterwards killed at Toulouse by a musket ball which struck him in the thigh. He was delighted at having met with me, and we resolved not to desert each other during the night. Brooks, as I have said, was a strong, active and resolute fellow, as indeed I had, on more occasions than one, witnessed in Portugal. At the present time, his strength was useful to both of us. Catch hold of me, Jacket Harris, said he. The ground here is soft and we must help each other tonight, or we'll be lost in the bogs. Before long, that which Brooks feared happened, and he found himself stuck so fast in the morass that although I used my best efforts to draw him out, I only shared in the same disaster, so that, leaving him, I turned and endeavoured to save my own life if possible, calling to him to follow before he sank over head and ears. This was an unlucky chance in our wearied state, as the more we floundered in the dark, not knowing which way to gain a firmer foundation, the faster we fixed ourselves. Poor Brooks was so disheartened, he actually blubbered like a child. At length, during a pause in our exertions, 
I thought I heard something like the bark of a dog come down the wind. I bade Brooks listen, and we both distinctly heard it. The sound gave us new hope, just as we were about to abandon ourselves to our fate. I advised Brooks to lay himself as flat as he could and drag himself out of the slow, as I'd found some hard tufts of grass in the direction I tried, and so, by degrees, we gained a firmer footing and eventually succeeded in extricating ourselves, though in such an exhausted state that for some time we lay helplessly upon the ground, unable to proceed. At length, with great caution, we ventured to move forwards in the direction of the sounds we had just heard. We found, however, that our situation was still very perilous, for in the darkness we hardly dared to move a step in any direction without probing the ground with our rifles, lest we should again sink and be eventually smothered in the morasses we had strayed amongst. On a sudden, however, as we carefully felt our way, we heard voices shouting in the distance and calling out, Men! Last! Men! Last! Which we immediately concluded were the cries of some of our own people who were situated like ourselves. After a while, I thought I saw, far away, something like a dancing light, which seemed to flicker about, vanish, and reappear, similar to a jack-o'-lantern. I pointed it out to Brooks, and we agreed to alter our course and move towards it. As we did so, the light seemed to approach us and grow larger, and presently another and another appeared, like small twinkling stars. Still, they looked something like the lamps upon one of our London bridges, as seen from afar. The sight revived our spirits, more especially as we could now distinctly hear the shouts of people who appeared in search of the stragglers, and as they approached us, we perceived that such was indeed the case. The lights, we now discovered, were furnished by bundles of straw and dried twigs, tied on the ends of long poles and dipped in tar. They were born in the hands of several Spanish peasants from a village near at hand, whom Crawford had thus sent to our rescue. He had discovered, on reaching and halting in this village, the number of men that had strayed from the main body, and immediately ordering the torches I have mentioned to be prepared, he collected together a party of Spanish peasants and obliged them to go out into the open country and seek for his men. As I have said, by which means he saved, on that night, many from death. To return to my own adventures on this night, when Brooks and myself reached the village I have mentioned, we found it filled with soldiers, standing and lying, huddled together like cattle in the fair. A most extraordinary sight it appeared, as the torches of the peasants flashed upon the way-worn and gaunt figures of our army. The rain was coming down, too, on this night. I remember, and soon after I reached our corps, I felt helplessly to the ground in a miserable plight. Brooks was himself greatly exhausted, but he behaved nobly and remained beside me, trying to persuade some of our men to assist him in lifting me up and gaining shelter in one of the houses at hand. May I be, I heard him say. Philip Harris to be butchered in the streets by the cowardly Spaniards at the moment our division leaves the tune. At length, Brooks succeeded in getting a man to help him, and together they supported me into the passage of a house where I lay upon the floor for some time. After a while, by the help of some wine they procured, I rallied and sat up till eventually I got once more upon my legs, and arm in arm we proceeded again into the streets and joined our corps. Poor Brooks certainly saved my life that night. 
He was one of the many good fellows whom I have seen out, and I often think of him with feelings of gratitude as I sit at my work in Richmond Street, Soho. When the division got the order to proceed again, we were still linked arm in arm, and thus we proceeded, sometimes, when the day appeared, stopping for a short time and resting ourselves, and then hurrying on again. I remember Sir Dudley Hill passing me on a mule this day. He wore a Spanish straw hat and had his cloak on. He looked back when he had passed and addressed me. Harris, said he, I see you cannot keep up. He appeared sorry for me, for he knew me well. You must do your best. He said, my man, keep with us or you will fall into the hands of the enemy. As the day wore on, I grew weaker and weaker. And at last, spite of all my efforts, I saw the main body leave me hopelessly in the lurch. Brooks himself was getting weaker too. He saw it was of little use to urge me on, and at length, assenting to my repeated request to be left behind, he hurried on as well as he was able without a word of farewell. I now soon sank down in the road and lay beside another man who had also fallen and was apparently dead and whom I recognised as one of our sergeants named Taylor, belonging to the Honourable Captain Pakenham's, now General Sir Hercules Pakenham, company. Whilst we lay exhausted in the road, the rear guard, which was now endeavouring to drive on the stragglers, approached, and a sergeant of the rifles came up and stopped to look at us. He addressed himself to me and ordered me to rise, but I told him it was useless for him to trouble himself about me, as I was unable to move a step further. Whilst he was urging me to endeavour to rise up, the officer in command of the rear guard also stepped up. The name of this officer was Lieutenant Cox. He was a brave and good man, and observing that the sergeant was rough in his language and manner towards me, he silenced him and bade the guard proceed and leave me and let him die quietly. Hicks, he said to the sergeant. I know him well. He's not the man to lie here if he could get on. I'm sorry, Harris. He said, See you reduced to this, for I fear there is no help to be had now. He then moved on after his men and left me to my fate. After lying still for a while, I felt somewhat restored and sat up to look about me. The sight was by no means cheering. On the road behind me, I saw men, women, mules and horses lying at intervals, both dead and dying. Whilst far away in front, I could just discern the enfeebled army crawling out of sight. The women, huddled together in its rear, trying their best to get forward amongst those of the sick soldiery, who were now unable to keep up with the main body. After a while, I found that my companion, the sergeant, who lay beside me, had also recovered a little, and I tried to cheer him up. I told him that opposite to where we were lying, there was a lane, down which we might possibly find some place of shelter, if we could muster strength to explore it. The sergeant consented to make the effort, but after two or three attempts to rise, gave it up. I myself was more fortunate. With the aid of my rifle, I got upon my legs, and seeing death in my companion's face, I resolved to try and save myself, since it was quite evident to me that I could render him no assistance. After hobbling some distance down the lane, To my great joy, I espied a small hut or cabin with a little garden in its front. I therefore opened the small door of the hovel and was about to enter 
when I considered that most likely I should be immediately knocked on the head by the inmates if I did so. The rain, I remember, was coming down in torrents at this time, and reflecting that to remain outside was but to die, I resolved at all events to try my luck with him. I had not much strength left, but I resolved to sell myself as dearly as I could. I therefore brought up my rifle and stepped across the threshold. As soon as I had done so, I observed an old woman seated beside a small fire upon the hearth. She turned her head as I entered, and immediately upon seeing a strange soldier, she arose and filled the hovel with her screams. As I drew back within a doorway, an elderly man, followed by two, who were apparently his sons, rushed from a room in the interior. They immediately approached me, but I brought up my rifle again and cocked it, bidding them keep their distance. After I'd thus brought them to a parley, I got together what little Spanish I was master of, and begged for shelter for the night and a morsel of food, at the same time lifting my feet and displaying them a mass of bleeding sores. It was not, however, till they had held a tolerably long conversation among themselves that they consented to afford me shelter, and then only upon the condition that I left by daylight on the following morning. I accepted the conditions with joy. Had they refused me, I should indeed not have been here to tell the tale. Knowing the treachery of the Spanish character, I however refused to relinquish possession of my rifle, and my right hand was ready in an instant to unsheath my bayonet as they sat and stared at me whilst I devoured the food they offered. Notwithstanding the weariness which pervaded my whole body, I was unable for some time to sleep except by fitful snatches. Such was the fear I entertained of having my throat cut by the savage-looking wretches still seated before the fire. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's better help H-E-L-P. Besides which, the place they had permitted me to crawl into was more like an oven than anything else, and being merely a sort of berth scooped out the wall was so filled with fleas and other vermin that I was stung and tormented most miserably all night long. Bad as they had been, however, I felt somewhat restored by my lodging and supper, and with the dawn 
I crawled out of my lair, left the hut, retraced my steps along the lane, and once more emerged upon the high road, where I found my companion, the sergeant, dead, and lying where I'd left him the night before. I now made the best of my way along the road, in the direction in which I had last seen our army retreating the night before. A solitary individual, I seemed left behind amongst those who had perished. It was still raining, I remember, on this morning, and the very dead looked comfortless in their last sleep as I passed them, occasionally lying on the line of march. It pleased heaven to give me an iron constitution, or I must have failed, I think, on this day, for the solitary journey and the miserable spectacles I beheld rather damped my spirits. After progressing some miles, I came up with a cluster of poor devils who were still alive, but apparently, both men and women, unable to proceed. They were sitting huddled together in the road, their heads drooping forward, and apparently patiently awaiting their end. Soon after passing these unfortunates, I overtook a party who were being urged forward under charge of an officer of the 42nd Highlanders. He was pushing them along pretty much as a drover would keep together a tired flock of sheep. They presented a curious example of a retreating force. Many of them had thrown away their weapons and were linked together arm in arm in order to support each other, like a party of drunkards. They were, I saw, composed of various regiments. Many were bareheaded and without shoes, and some with their heads tied up in old rags and fragments of handkerchiefs. I marched in company with this party for some time, but as I felt after my night's lodging a refreshment in better condition, I ventured to push forwards in the hope of rejoining the main body, and which I once more came up within the street of a village. On falling in with the rifles, I again found Brooks, who was surprised at seeing me still alive, and we both entered a house and begged for something to drink. I remember that I had a shirt upon my back at this time, which I had purchased of a drummer of the 9th Regiment before the commencement of the retreat. It was the only good one I had. I stripped with the assistance of Brooks and took it off and exchanged it with a Spanish woman for a loaf of bread, which Brooks, myself and two other men shared amongst us. I remember to have again remarked Crawford at this period of the retreat. He was no whit altered in his desire to keep the force together. I thought, but still active and vigilant as ever, he seemed to keep his eye upon those who were now most likely to hold out. I myself marched during many hours close beside him this day. He looked stern and pale, but the very picture of a warrior. I shall never forget Crawford, if I live to a hundred years, I think. He was everything a soldier should be. Slowly and dejectedly crawled our army along. Their spirit of endurance was now considerably worn out, and judging from my own sensations... I felt confident that if the sea was much further from us, we must be content to come to a halt at last without gaining it. I felt something like the approach of death as I proceeded, a sort of horror mixed up with my sense of illness, a reeling I have never experienced before or since. Still, I held on, but with all my efforts, the main body again left me behind. Had the enemy's cavalry come up at this time, I think they would have had little else to do but ride us down without striking a blow. It is, however, indeed astonishing how man clings to life. I am certain that had I lain down at this period, I should have found my last billet on the spot I sank upon. Suddenly, I heard a shout in front, which was prolonged in a sort of hubbub. Even the stragglers, 
whom I saw dotting the road in front of me, seemed to have caught at something like hope, and as the poor fellows now reached the top of a hill we were ascending, I heard an occasional exclamation of joy, the first note of the sort I had heard for many days. When I reached the top of the hill, the thing spoke for itself. There, far away in our front, the English shipping lay in sight. Its view had indeed acted like a restorative to our force, and the men, at the prospect of a termination to the march, had plucked up spirit for a last effort. Fellows who, like myself, seemed to have hardly strengthened their legs to creep up the ascent, seemed now to have picked up a fresh pair to get down with. Such is hope to us poor mortals. There was, I recollect, a man of the name Bell of the Rifles, who had been during this day holding a sort of creeping race with me. We had passed and repassed each other as our strength served. Bell was rather a discontented fellow at the best of times, but during this retreat he had given full scope to his ill temper, cursing the hour he was born, and wishing his mother had strangled him when he came into the world, in order to save him from his present toil. He had now not spoken for some time, and the sight of the English shipping had apparently a very beneficial effect upon him. He burst into tears as he stood and looked at it. Harris, he said, if it pleases God to let me reach those ships, I swear to never utter a bad or discontented word again. As we proceeded down the hill, we now met with the first symptoms of good feeling from the inhabitants, as it was our fortune to experience during our retreat. A number of old women stood on either side of the road, and occasionally handed us fragments of bread as we passed them. It was on this day, and whilst I looked anxiously upon the English shipping in the distance, that I first began to find my eyesight failing, and it appeared to me that I was fast growing blind. The thought was alarming, and I made desperate efforts to get on. Bell, however, won the race this time. He was a very athletic and strong-built fellow, and left me far behind, so that I believe at the time I was the very last of the retreating force that reached the beach. Though doubtless many stragglers did come dropping up after the ships had sailed and were left behind. As it was, when I did manage to gain the seashore, it was only by the aid of my rifle that I could stand, and my eyes were now so dim and heavy that with difficulty I made out a boat which seemed the last that had put off. Fearful of being left half blind in the lurch, I took off my cap and placed it on the muzzle of my rifle as a signal, for I was totally unable to call out. Luckily, Lieutenant Cox, who was aboard the boat, saw me and ordered the men to return, and making one more effort, I walked into the water, and a sailor stretching his body over the gunwale seized me as if I had been an infant and hauled me on board. His words were characteristic of the English sailor, I thought. Hello there, you lazy lubber, he said, as he grasped hold of me. Who the hell do you think is going to stay on bugging all day for such a fellow as you? The boat, I found, was crowded with our exhausted men, who lay helplessly at the bottom, the heavy sea every moment drenching them to the skin. As soon as we reached the vessel's side, the sailors immediately aided us to get on board, which in our exhausted state was not a very easy matter as they were obliged to place ropes in our hands and heave us up by setting their shoulders under us and hoisting away as if they had been pushing bales of goods on board. Heave away, cried one of the boat's crew, as I clung to a rope, quite unable to pull myself up. Heave away, you lover. The tar placed his shoulder beneath me as he spoke and hoisted me up against the ship's side. 
I lost my grasp of the rope and should have fallen into the sea had it not been for two of the crew. These men grasped me as I was falling and drew me into the porthole like a bundle of foul clothes, tearing away my belt and bayonet in the effort which fell into the sea. It was not very many minutes after I was on board, for I lay where the sailors had first placed me after dragging me up through the porthole. Here I was sound asleep. I slept long and heavily, and it was only the terrible noise and bustle on board, consequent upon a gale having sprung up, that at length awoke me. The wind increased as the night came on, and soon we had to experience all the horrors of a storm at sea. The pumps were set to work, the sails were torn to shreds, the coppers were overset, and we appeared in a fair way, I thought, of going to the bottom. Meanwhile, the pumps were kept at work night and day, incessantly till they were choked, and the gale growing worse and worse, all the soldiery were ordered below, and the hatches closed, soon after which the vessel turned over on one side, and lay a helpless log upon the water. In this situation, an officer was placed over us, with his sword drawn in one hand, and a lantern in the other, in order to keep us on the side which was uppermost, so as to give the vessel a chance of righting herself in the roaring tide. The officer's task was not an easy one, as the heaving waves frequently sent us sprawling from the part we clung to over to the lowermost part of the hold where he stood, and he was obliged every minute to drive us back. We remained in this painful situation for, I should think, five or six hours, expecting every instant to be our last, when, to our great joy, the sea suddenly grew calm, and the wind abated. The vessel righted herself, and we were once more released from our prison, having tasted nothing in the shape of food for at least 48 hours. Soon after this, we arrived in sight of Spithead, where we saw nine of our convoy, laden with troops, which had been driven on shore in the gale. After remaining off Spithead for about five or six days, one fine morning we received orders to disembark, and our poor bare feet once more touched English ground. The inhabitants flocked down to the beach to see us, as we did so, and they must have been a good deal surprised at the spectacle we presented. Our beards were long and ragged, almost all were without shoes and stockings, many had their clothes and accoutrements in fragments, with their heads swathed in old rags, and our weapons were covered with rust, whilst not a few had now, from toil and fatigue, become quite blind. Let not the reader, however, think that even now we were to be despised as soldiers. Long marches, inclement weather and want of food had done their work upon us, but we were perhaps better than we appeared, as the sequel showed. Under the gallant Crawford, we had made some tremendous marches and even galled our enemies severely, making good our retreat by the way of the Vigo. But our comrades in adversity, and who had retired by the other road to Corunya under General Moore, turned to bay there, and showed the enemy that the English shoulder is not to be beaten, even under the most adverse circumstances. The field of death and slaughter, the march, the bivouac, and the retreat, are no bad places in which to judge of men. I have had some opportunities of judging them in all these situations, and I should say that the British are amongst the most splendid soldiers in the world. Give them fair play, and they are unconquerable. For my own part, I can only say that I enjoyed life more whilst on active service, than I have ever done since. And as I sit at work in my shop in Richmond Street, Soho, I look back upon that portion of my time spent in the fields of the peninsula as the only part worthy of remembrance. 
It is at such times that scenes long past come back upon my mind as if they had taken place but yesterday. I remember even the very appearance of some of the regiments engaged and comrades long moulded to dust. I see again performing the acts of heroes. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to support it, then why not send us a PayPal donation? All donations help us pay to host the podcast and for us to create new content for your enjoyment. Furthermore, if you would like to submit a question or even a subject matter for the podcast, join Patreon and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The links are in our bio. Until next time, keep history alive.